Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. I'm Paul Reesmanel, and I'm one of your hosts and producers. And with me, uh, via the Skype technology from San Francisco, is another host, Jennifer Waits. Welcome, Jennifer. Greetings. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. And then uh, via Brooklyn, New York, we have Professor John Anderson from Brooklyn College. He's been on several times, and he's joining us again. Thanks for joining us, John. Glad to be here. And uh, on today's show, you know, uh, we, we kind of can't avoid the elephant in the country, I suppose. Uh, the fact that we have a president whose name is Donald Trump and who is making lots of uh, assertive and sudden moves with regard to many aspects of our government. I don't even know how else to, to say this. Um, but, you know, what we've covered in the last couple of weeks has been some moves with regard to uh, changing leadership at the Federal Communications Commission and some of the uh, changes already in, in some elements of, of regulation. And, and John, you know, because you are uh, working there, you've been working at the intersection, as we say, <laughs> Of me, of media democracy for a very it's a long horrible time. Intersection to work at. Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's, you gotta uh, it's chaotic as hell. It's jump not out a good, of the way all the time. Yeah, you need a flare gun. Um, you know, I wanted to get some of your input because you've. I think you've got both a policy, deep, deep policy perspective, as well as you've got an on the ground kind of grassroots perspective. And then you are you're currently working. You know, in college radio there at, at Brooklyn College, you've worked in commercial radio, you've worked in community radio. Um, so I think you've got some broad perspective there, and I thought it would be a great conversation. But I, we kind of—I think the first piece of news I want to take up only tangentially relates to uh, Mr. Trump, and that is the fact that a whole bunch of radio stations, many of them low-power FM radio stations, have been hijacked in the last ten days by somebody who then is playing the song "F Donald Trump." On it's Luke. a great song. It's a wonderful song. <laughs> and we'll put that in the show notes. I mean, obviously, everyone who understands uh, that this show is going to be littered with profanities, uh, given its name. We're not saying the actual name. I don't know that there's a radio edit that is available anywhere. So just, you know, be forewarned. I think people are adult enough to know what they're getting into. But so, John, I mean, I know you've been following this story. Uh, how the heck does this happen? Uh, basically, it comes down to the fact that most radio stations are at least a decade or so behind the technical curve, especially when it comes to interfacing their equipment with the Internet. Um, the way that these hijacking, so to speak, have happened, it's not like uh, old movies where, you know, some long hairs run into a studio uh, and hold everybody at gunpoint to make them play their songs. Uh, this is all done remotely. Um, and it's done basically by using a special search engine online called Shodan that allows you to basically find all devices that are connected to the internet that are open for you to play with. And many stations use a particular device, um, that's manufactured by an organization called Barracks, uh, called an X streamer. And what this is basically is a studio to transmitter link device. Now, in the oldie, timey, pre-internet days, the ways that radio stations would get their audio programming out to wherever their transmitter or antenna is was using a pair of balanced phone lines or an ISDN line or a T1 line or possibly even a microwave point-to-point line-of-sight wireless signal. 
Um, now, with the advent of the internet, many stations are effectively using the internet as the studio to transmitter link. And the X streamer uh, that Barracks created allows uh, stations to effectively decode and re-encode and stream their program audio over the internet from their studio location out to where the transmitter is. So it's basically the link that connects the studio to the transmitter. Now, when you buy a Barracks X streamer, it comes with a default password. And unfortunately, all of the stations that have been hijacked forgot to change the default password. So if you go online and you look up Barracks X streamer default password, you can find out what that is. Then go to the Shodan search engine and look for all the Barracks X streamers that are available for you to access online. And then it's a pretty simple script kitty exercise to simply go in and see if the default login and password information works. And if it does, voila, you have remote control of a radio station. Now, this is not the first time that stations using these devices who did not uh, protect them properly have been hacked. Last year, several stations, both low-power and full-power stations that used the barracks boxes and didn't change their passwords, found themselves um, broadcasting a podcast about furry sex. And I don't mean furry sex of people that have a lot of hair. I mean people that actually dress up in animal costumes and get it on. And so this is not the first time uh, that the radio industry, so to speak, commercial and non-commercial, has had an unfortunate interruption. This time around, someone applied it to make a political statement. And, you know, I'm kind of of two minds about that. Number one, I'm like, great. Um, way to interject interesting, surreal moments into our media environment. We desperately can use that. Um, but at the second time, this is a self-inflicted wound on the part of the broadcasters, the affected broadcasters that have not taken the appropriate information security steps to lock down their program and transmission infrastructures. And yeah, I mean, and, and also I think there's, it, it could be worse, right? I mean, the, I mean, on the one hand, sure, there's the F word in this song, but people could take it over for far more nefarious purposes or more really strict hate speech or something oh, like yeah. that. And, and it's sort yeah. of a good thing um, that this didn't happen. And, you know, I, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the coverage has made it seem like it's mostly low power FM stations, uh, community stations that have been taken over, but that's not the case, is it? Well, you know, no one's gotten a really firm head count of exactly how many stations have been affected and what their classes are, but it's demonstrably clear from all of the coverage of both the prior furry sex incident and the new F Donald Trump incident uh, that it's a mixture of LPFM and full power radio stations. And I mean, this basically comes down to having adequate, knowledgeable staff on hand to make sure that your devices are secure. Among full power stations, whether they're commercial or non-commercial, consolidation in the radio industry post-1996 has effectively decimated the ranks of full-time broadcast engineers. Uh, the vast majority of, of radio stations in the United States don't really employ their own on-site broadcast engineers. They've contracted that out to a person who comes around every few months or who may be on call if you have some sort of, uh, you know, emergency of some kind. But at the same time, many older broadcast engineers do not have the requisite skill sets to deal with uh, internet-based technologies. So when you got a problem, there's nobody to call. Right. And then when you look at LPFM stations, kind of the same thing applies. Many of these stations are being set up by people 
that are really interested in having access to the airwaves, but may not have all the appropriate skill sets necessary to run a radio station. And those folks use temporary or contract or volunteer engineers to come in and help them uh, set up their infrastructures. And so again, when something happens, there's no one really on call who can immediately go and track down the problem. So it's affecting both LPFMs and full power radio stations. And it comes down to the fact that none of the stations have the necessary or adequate staff to properly maintain their own information security. But it's a problem that affects stations across the gamut. It's not just an LPF M thing by any any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, and the way you describe it, I think almost to say it's a hack is almost overestimating it because you know, it's not as if people are breaking passwords or doing any like really hardcore computer work. They're really just guessing and getting it right. And it's, no, sort, yeah. of, it's sort of like breaking in. I mean, and, and I think people do the same thing and like access people's baby monitors or access now their refrigerators or all sorts of other Internet dev- connected devices where people haven't changed the uh, default password. Yep, that's exactly what it comes down to. It's not some sort of special black hat extra elite you know, skills that you need. If you can do a Google search and find the default passwords for the affected uh, audio over IP boxes, you got the first piece you need. And then you use this special Internet of Things search engine to find the boxes that may be vulnerable. And then it's simply, you know, surfing your way over to those boxes and plugging in the default username and password into the the login screen. That's it. You know, Uh, anybody can do it pretty much. And I'm sure some folks, especially people in low power FM, are wondering if this happens to us, you know, let's say even if they take precautions and this happens to us and someone still comes in and decides to play F Donald Trump on our station, are we going to get fined? Is the FCC going to be right at our door? And are we, you know, is that it? Are we going to get the $15,000 fine and we're going to be out of business? Well, that's a good question. You know, um, one of the first things that the FCC requires is documentation that a violation existed. Um, And in many cases, that often involves a recording. So it depends on how long, you know, the song or podcast in question is going on and if someone can actually make a sample of it. But at the same time, the FCC uh, is statutorily mandated to take into consideration extenuating circumstances. So if this was not a you know willful and egregious violation and steps are taken immediately to remediate it, and given the stature of the station involved, whether it's a non-commercial LPFM station or something larger, then uh, there's a chance that the FCC may not fine them or significantly reduce the fine. To my knowledge, however, over the course of all these uh, intrusions that have taken place over the last couple of years, the FCC hasn't actually prosecuted anyone for a indecency violation that I'm aware of. But it doesn't mean that well, it couldn't and, happen. And even before this technology, I've certainly heard stories about radio stations having their transmitter shacks broken into, and people have come up with a cassette tape even of nefarious material um, effectively hijacking a radio station. So The technology has changed, but I know something like this has happened in the past, too. Yes, there was a public radio station up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I think it was during the Bush 2 administration era who had that happen. Someone broke into their transmitter facilities, hardwired a CD player uh, into the transmission infrastructure, and I think played a bunch of uh, anti-Bush music or something. And it took, you know, several hours for Wisconsin Public Radio to dispatch an engineer to the site who could then, you know, take control of the station. It's also important to note that cyber intrusions to radio stations come in many different flavors other than simply hijacking 
the programming. There have been instances over the last couple of years where station computers have been affected with ransomware, where you click on a malicious link, uh, information is downloaded into your computer system or network, and then suddenly all of your hard drives are encrypted, and you get an informa- uh, a message saying, unless you send a certain number of Bitcoin uh, to this particular address, you'll never see your data again. Uh, It can be deleted. And this ransomware attack has affected many different institutions, not just radio stations, but hospitals, uh, school systems, uh, corporations. And in some cases, that's like in the radio context, it's actually led to the loss of a station's music library because they're not able to pay or they refuse to pay and they can't break the encryption. So they basically have to wipe the computers clean and reinstall everything. Um, So there's multiple threat vectors uh, when it comes to cyber intrusions into radio stations, but they're also part and parcel of a larger phenomenon of cyber intrusions that are happening to almost any device that's connected to the internet. And with more devices being connected every day, the chances of intrusions like these go up. So you know, make that, a backup is is what you want to say. And make, make a backup, backup and change, take it offline. And change put it in the, the closet. Passwords. Yeah, change the default <laughs> passwords. Don't don't connect your office network to your program network. You know, keep the things air gapped, as they say, um, and make sure that you're keeping the number of people who have legitimate access to a minimum. It's also a good idea to change your passwords on a regular basis and make sure that they're strong. Sorry, Jennifer, we, we cut you off there. While you were saying this, it's reminding me that, you know, I've um, talked about and written about the history of college radio at Haverford College, where I went to school. And back around 2000, they had a horrible hacker attack where people were actually trying to break into some other computer somewhere, but they found a way in through a computer network at Haverford that the college radio station was on. And the hacker attack ended up basically shutting down the radio station. It was kind of the death knell for that period of time, um, sort of like the nail in the coffin for that era of radio at Haverford, and it was all because of a hacker attack. Well, so try to find your security. If you're at a college or university, I would bet you have a, a, a cybersecurity office, and if you don't currently have a relationship with them, Go over there. Bring them, bring them some snacks and some Mountain Dew. <laughs> Say, introduce yourself. <laughs> Not and, only that, but you know, make sure that you you talk with your staff of yeah. your stations and say, don't click on hinky links from emails that may or may not be legitimate because that's also another way by which, you know, for example, ransomware attacks happen through through email phishing. So there needs to be an element of cyber literacy that I think stations themselves, whether they're college stations, commercial stations or whatever, need to take some ownership of and, and you know, provide self-education for. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so that's that's a good lesson to, to take away there. So now I guess sort of taking a step back then, um, you know, one of the reasons I sort of brought up the uh, indecency uh, question in part because I, I heard people mention it. But I, you know, I thought to myself, you know, uh, FCC enforcement of indecency is kind of it's changed over the years. Uh, we're now I think we have to go back more than 10 years ago when uh, Bono uh, was on television and used uh, the F word uh, on the was it the Grammys or it was uh, it was an award show on Fox, and it was you know live, not planned. He wasn't really talking about uh, sexual intercourse or anything. He just sort of he used the word, and uh, the FCC fined Fox and said it was even though it's a, a fleeting expletive, uh, you know 
nevertheless, you, you're you're uh, responsible. Of course, this got challenged, but you know what? It, well, the reason I use this example it goes to show how the enforcement of rules at the FCC. You know, there's there's the letter, there's the policy, and then there's you know what a given uh, FCC, the chairman and the commissioners prioritize, and what they decide they want to crack down on right now. And I and I and I you know I hesitate to to, to voices, but I will. You know, it's like I wonder just you know in in the case of this particular incident, and we have a new FCC chairman, and the song's content. You know, would this be something which uh, an FCC chairman could be pushed to uh, make an example out of? You mean like you mean like uh, Donald Trump is going to call up Ajit Pai and be like, "You need to go after these mofos because they did some bad things to to me. They made me they made me sound bad." Yeah, I mean uh, it, it happened uh, in the Nixon administration. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's precedent for this. It's it's not it's not a, a complete. I didn't completely pick this out a while. I'm trying out of out of the air. I'm trying not to be paranoid. Uh, very trying very hard, in fact. But uh, you know the. Nixon famously like, used the FCC to to do some of his dirty work, uh, in particular doing things like issuing very short license renewals to Pacifica stations. Right. Do we know if he's even weighed in on this? Do we know if he even knows what the FCC is? I mean, we know that he's met with Pi, you know, and, and vetted him to be chair and now Ajit Pai is chair. But do we actually know that Trump knows know that. what the FCC does? There's been no tweets about it that I'm aware of. Yeah, that's, I mean, I'm more curious, like if he, if he's had a response to the stations being hijacked playing this song. I don't think so. So maybe that's a good thing. Uh, and I don't yeah. think he listens to our podcast. I'm relatively certain uh, we don't get a lot of downloads in the White House yet. So, um, so perhaps I, my uh, my concerns are misplaced. I just wonder about that, or you know, but I also tend to think. I don't get the sense that Aji Pai, who's, who's a fairly experienced bureaucrat at the very least, it would be so interested in carrying that sort of water. Uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm, I'm projecting too much, but uh, I don't know what you think, John. I don't know. I mean, I also think that you have to look at Pai's uh, regulatory ideology, and he has been very, very adamant about the fact that he doesn't like the fact that the FCC is involved in a lot of different elements of communications regulation. And one of the things that he said before he became chair kind of in that interregnum period as the uh, election was over and the inauguration was coming was, you know, we're going to get ready to take a weed whacker to, to the regulations. And he's already begun that process. For example, you know, getting rid of the requirement that stations keep paper copies of correspondence from the public in their public file, He's going to make some changes to media ownership requirements for an investment. And there's a very – and I think there's also an executive order that came down amongst the flurry in the last few weeks that said something to the effect of if a regulatory body wants to uh, attempt to create a new regulation, they must repeal two existing regulations uh, in order to do that. So the, the whole concept is a net reduction in the amount of regulation that government does. And Pi is a pretty uh, adamant person when it comes to the government should get out of the way on these sorts of things. And we haven't really seen him engage very much in the notion of regulation of speech. Uh, there was one controversial thing that he did a couple of years ago when the Federal Communications Commission was going to put together a study to examine the local news ecosystem in a bunch of different markets around the country. It was called Information Needs of Communities Study. And he you know, went on a bully pulpit of the Wall Street Journal and Fox News and CNBC and decried uh, this attempt as some sort of crazy overreach into becoming the news police. 
And because he put up such a stink, uh, the FCC, controlled by the Democrats at the time, nixed the entire study. It just wasn't done. So I don't know. And I haven't seen evidence or experience from Pi's thinking or regulatory philosophy or even regulatory actions to date where he's willing to take up what is essentially kind of a social conservative speech bugaboo. Um, But we'll see, you know. And I also think a lot of it comes down to the notion of how much staff is he going to have at the FCC? If there's, you know, the same types of staffing trajectories playing out at that agency as are playing out at other cabinet level department agencies or those overseen by cabinet level department agencies, then maybe there will be a net diminution of the number of staff in places like the media bureau's audio division who would be considering and deliberating these sorts of complaints if and when they were actually filed. But it's still really too early to see how that's going to shake out. We haven't seen you know, leaks coming out of the FCC like we've seen coming out of the State Department. But who knows? That may be in the future once the FCC really starts gets, gets rolling under the deregulatory philosophy that Pi uh, and his buddy Mike O'Reilly have espoused. So, Jennifer, do you have a sense, um, are you hearing any anxiety or concerns from from college radio uh, folks in particular at this moment? I mean, there's always sort of in community radio and college radio, just sort of omnipresent fear of the FCC that I often feel is overblown because I think that the rules are actually very clear. And the FCC is more interested in stations being on the air than not. They're not they don't love being cops in a lot of ways, but I, I find people have a lot of fear. Do you do you get a sense that there's more anxiety or there's some persistent questions right now in the uh, you know with this new administration I have I haven't heard anything yet but I know that questions that college radio stations always um, they're always confused about obscenity and indecency um, and are afraid about getting in trouble for airing things that the FCC doesn't want them to air so I'd be curious about I'm curious about that going forward um you know, in the last administration, we saw some leniency for student-run stations. So if they committed first-time violations that were relatively minor, um, they weren't fined as much as they could have been in the past. So I would be curious, you know, what you what you think, John, do you think that will be the case going forward, that student-run stations will still be, be more of a hands-off approach, or do you think they'll crack down more? on student stations. I don't really get a sense that, you know, there's a pending crackdown coming, you know, I mean, um, the Trump administration has a visceral hatred for the media, but they're pretty much confining that to the establishment corporate media at this point in time. Um, and you know, many community and college stations don't have an incredibly robust journalism presence as it is. And given, you know, the types of stations that they have, they're not reaching, you know, hugely statistically significant national audiences where these things suddenly become stuff that can percolate into Trump's Twitter feed and make him angry. Um, And then on top of that, again, you kind of have to go back to the notion of what is going to be the regular regulatory philosophy under an FCC controlled by Trump appointees. And all instances that we've seen right now is the FCC actually seeding the field in many respects, as far as what it is that they might regulate. So I think it's important that everybody remain vigilant and abide by the rules as written. Um, 
we've had our own issues at my own station, but we're not an actual FCC licensed station. Technically, we're just an online streaming outlet, so we don't have to abide by any of that stuff. But because we're trying to you know, professionalize our students for a career possibly in the industry, we play under those rules. And, you know, we're more concerned about things like getting sued uh, by an ambulance chasing lawyer because we used a uh, a photo online that's copyrighted. You know, there's actually lawyers, uh, a, a firm actually out in Long Island that's going and checking all radio station websites and pulling down the photos that are on those websites and then determining who the owners were and then suing those stations for basically copyright violation. And and my own station was hit by one of those last year. Wow. Uh, we, had to, we had to pay something like $1,500. But again, that's not a regulatory thing. That's, uh, you know, a lawyer finding in a litigatory market where he can go in and make some quick cash. Um, and that's not really an FCC issue. So I don't think people should necessarily worry that the FCC is going to be somehow reinvigorated and going on a crusade, uh, for speech police. If there's one thing that I can say about chairman Pai, it's that he is an independent thinker. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to go rogue if, a dictate comes down from Steve Bannon in the White House to shut down all non-Nazi speech or something. But if but if that were actually to happen, we'd have much bigger problems than isolated stations around the country, many of which operate at 100 watts or less, playing a song with an F word in it. You know what I mean? And how about uh, – this kind of relates to what we started with um, when we were talking about the stations that were hijacked and were playing the F Trump song. Um, I'd also heard that there was a pirate station that was intentionally playing that song. Yeah, so and it turned it turned out in? right. It turned out that uh, that was not a pirate station. That apparently oh. was wasn't. I think you're, you're talking about like 101.9 in Seattle. Yeah, uh, yeah. Radio Insight uh, had an update on that piece, and apparently that was an LPFM station uh, who found its barracks box hacked. Oh. But if you're if, if you're a pirate station then the rules don't matter because you're already breaking, you know, the fundamental rule section 301 by not having a license. So at that point, everything's fair game. You know, I ran a pirate station for five years. Wow. Uh, 17 years ago at this point, I started, um, 2000 to 2004, 2005. Oh, and my programming was salty. You know? <laughs> Um, and it was, and, and that was intentional, you know, that was intentional. That was part of the freedom of broadcasting without a license. And we were also kind of a resistance node, uh, in a grassroots media ecosystem that existed at that time. So by the time you get to, you know, dropping F bombs on a pirate station, that's just superfluous because you've already broken the, the cardinal rule by going on the air without FCC approval in the first place. Do you think that, do you think we're going to have a resurgence or not a resurgence, but do you think we'll have a growth in politically oriented pirate stations? You know, I really hope so. But at the same time, if there's one thing that I'm worried the FCC is going to change tack on, it's the way that they deal with unlicensed broadcast enforcement. Uh, I am significantly concerned that we may actually get the war against unlicensed broadcasting that the commercial and public licensed broadcast industries have been clamoring for now for close to 20 years. Um, and there's already you know, kind of a regulatory philosophy outlined in that. Uh, Michael Riley, uh, the number two Republican uh, on the commission at this point, has made unlicensed broadcasting kind of a, 
a hobby horse of his where he's gone all around the country and he's convened task forces with various broadcast constituencies and he's working with members of Congress to effectively take a zero tolerance approach to unlicensed broadcasting. Uh, there are bills that are being developed in Congress, uh, one by a New York lawmaker who's not even close to New York City where the hotbed of unlicensed broadcasting is, that would criminalize activities that aid and abet unlicensed broadcasting. So it's it's not just going after the people that are operating the illicit transmitters. It's going after the people that rent them space. It's going after the people that advertise for them. And potentially it's going after the people that's, that speak out in support of them. Um, because of the whole deregulatory philosophy that we're seeing kind of starting to develop right now at the FCC, one of my big concerns is that the FCC cedes the enforcement of the license requirement to the private industry, effectively uh, vigilantizing, if that's a word, licensed broadcast engineers to go out and enforce the law on their own or allowing local and state police agencies uh, to begin to enforce those requirements. And that's already been tried. New York um, and New Jersey and Florida have laws on the books that criminalize broadcasting at the state level. But let's face it, most of those police agencies are too busy enforcing all the other laws that they have to enforce, so there's been real no activity. But if there is you know, a concrete prioritization amongst FCC leadership that unlicensed broadcasting or pirate radio of any sort is somehow, you know, completely verboten and the hammer comes down. I'm afraid that, you know, people will literally get hurt up until this point for the last hundred years, unlicensed broadcasting in the United States has been a victimless crime. And what I'm afraid of is that the FCC is going to change its enforcement paradigm in such a way that people will literally start to get hurt, not just thrown in jail, but, you know, blood could be spilled. And if that happens in conjunction with everything else we're kind of seeing in the nascent Trump era, then yes, uh, I sincerely hope uh, that we see a resurgence in the politicization, politicization of unlicensed broadcasting as a form of media resistance uh, to the regime, but still early days. You know, that's interesting, uh, that dynamic. I was unaware of this bill that's been floated in Congress. I, I, can't, I don't imagine at this point it's gotten a lot of traction. Otherwise, I probably would have heard more about it. Um, but, I mean, part of the debate has always been about, you know, that the FCC ceding that authority is that, it, is that the FCC risks making itself less and less relevant. Or, or maybe is that something that it actually wants to do? Is that really, could that be one of the goals is to make it less relevant? You know, because often I think Trump said at some point, why do we even need an FCC? Yeah, no, uh, I think I think that's absolutely right. And I guess now that we've had a change in administration, I, I can tell this story. I don't think that I've told it before because I was sworn to secrecy about it. But um, it was back in 2015, uh, the chief enforcement folks at the FCC contacted me and they said, we'd like you to come talk to us about the state of unlicensed broadcast enforcement in the country. So like in July of 2015, I hopped on the train from New York, went down to DC for the day, got whisked up to the eighth floor level um, where I sat in a conference room with representatives from Chairman Wheeler's office. There were there were no commissioners there, but like a representative of Chairman Wheeler's office was there. Peter Doyle of the audio division was there. The deputy chief of the enforcement bureau was there. Somebody from the office of diversity was there. And I basically gave them, you know, the spiel that I've been writing essentially for the last almost 20 years now, which is 
although you have the law on your side and that unlicensed broadcasting is prohibited, you ain't got nothing as far as, you know, the ability to enforce it. And uh, they were very cognizant of that. They were very receptive of that. And one of the questions that I remember one of the these high-level ranking staffers asking me was, well, what's the soft underbelly of the broadcast industry's argument that we can use to kind of parry uh, their request that we take a harder line on unlicensed broadcasting? And I said, I really don't know. Um, one of the things that you find is the arguments that unlicensed broadcasters make about the harms uh, or that licensed broadcasters make about the harms that pirate radio stations do are very specious. You know, like they interfere with emergency alert systems. No, not really. The EAS system is redundant. Uh, they take away listeners and advertisers. No, not really, because most of the stations are programming to audiences that licensed stations don't serve. Right. And it was a few months after having this secret meeting uh, with FCC high officialdom that Chairman Tom Wheeler wrote a letter to conference or uh, Congress basically reiterating everything that I said and effectively saying in the letter at this point in time, our enforcement uh, system does not work. And pretty much up until the end of Tom Wheeler's tenure, that was the position that the FCC was maintaining was, yeah, we, we, we got nothing. We can't actively uh, meaningfully enforce the license requirement. We need more help. And that's where this whole you know, potential effort to legislate either additional powers to the FCC or expanding the range of people who can be penalized for associating with pirate radio has come into play. Of course, this was all playing out under a different administration. So I don't know, you know, how it's going to play out under a Trump administration run by uh, Ajit Pai. What concerns me, though, is that the folks in the commissioner's office, specifically Michael O'Reilly, are still there. And now the party dynamic has changed and Pi may be much more likely to take his good buddies, uh, horrible, uh, argument seriously and move FCC regulation and enforcement priorities towards a complete and utter crackdown on unlicensed broadcasting. But again, early days too soon to tell. And are they getting a lot of, have they traditionally been getting a lot of pressure from, commercial radio groups or other radio groups, is that why they, you know, have an interest in pirate radio? Oh yeah. Within the last, um, probably five years or so, um, broadcast industry trade groups that, it, you know, represent licensed broadcasters in communities that are functionally overwhelmed by unlicensed broadcasting. Specifically, I'm talking about, you know, Miami, uh, New York and Boston, you know, the, the state broadcasters associations in those areas and New Jersey's broadcasters association have lobbied on a regular and nearly incessant basis asking for the FCC to do something. Uh, just last year, the New York state broadcasters association, um, did their own frequency study of the New York broadcasters market. They identified pretty much all of the pirate stations that they could find. They provided the FCC with address information even and said, please, 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 you know, do something about this. And the four guys down in Manhattan who are sitting in the FCC's office are functionally overwhelmed and there's not a lot they can do. And even when they go and shut down a station or threaten to shut down a station, the station disappears, moves, and then restarts. And that restarts the whole enforcement clock. So yes, there's been a lot of pressure, both applied to the FCC 
and also applied to various representatives of Congress who then also apply pressure to the FCC in order to do something about the scourge of pirate radio. But the FCC, to its credit, has in the past historically recognized its functional limitations in that regard, and they haven't been able to fulfill on all of the demands being made of them by the licensed broadcasters. But again, under a Trump administration, who knows? You know, I mean, that's the question I had exactly is, you know, can the FCC step it up, right? Because you just laid out this situation in which, you know, literally handed the information and they can't act on it. And I think that's that's true of all sorts of elements of, of policing. Uh, you know, I've known many people, I've talked to folks, you know, who are my neighbors who, who have called the police repeatedly over a house that is clearly, say, you know, selling illegal narcotics, right? <laughs> and called over and over and over again. And it's a very long time until it seems like anything is even investigated or done about it, right? Because again, local police and all sorts of, of jurisdictions are overwhelmed by all of the things that are expected to take care of and have to prioritize based upon some assessment, I suppose, uh, of what immediate harm is. So, I, you know, while we can, while they, you could certainly step up or, or, or even, you know, pass a law that 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 more formally criminalizes it, it, it i i really doubt the the ability of the fcc to remind law enforcement to actually act on it right um it I, what i worry is that that mostly that that it would affect a, a few vulnerable populations disproportionately just like our drug laws do yeah and that's one of the reasons that's one of the things that i kind of made clear to the fcc when when i was summoned to have this meeting was you know politically it's going to look really bad you're going into poor, mostly brown communities and shutting down the only meaningful media uh, outlet that they have, uh, you know, un understanding that they're flaunting the law to set this up, but they're doing it for relatively clear reasons uh, that make it that give them no option in order to do this. I think the other thing that we have to keep in mind is that, you know, the Tom Wheeler FCC has set in motion a, a, a net reduction of the Enforcement Bureau's footprints around the United States. You know, they're they're cutting something like half to two thirds of all field offices and consolidating employees in basically regional offices. And then in order to supplement that, they're going to have these two tiger teams of like roving inspectors that are going to fly into hotspots and do some enforcement and stuff like that. That was also the reorganization in that regard was supposed to actually start in January of this year. And the FCC hasn't reported any status as to Who's been let go? What positions do they need to fill? What offices, you know, what's the status of the organizations of the offices? So even if there is a policy prerogative to go after pirates, the FCC's already kind of screwed itself by reducing the number of boots on the ground, as it were, available to undertake a campaign like that. Hey, John, for people who maybe haven't heard you on the podcast before, can you just give sort of a rundown of what the typical pirate radio operator is like today? Because um, it might be different from the stereotype of what people have of pirate radio. Well, I mean, the stereotype that people have of pirate radio is, you know, Christian Slater as a teenager sitting in his basement uh, emoting or uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and a rogue band of crew on the high seas playing rock and roll. And let's face it, there are some unlicensed broadcast stations that do you know, uh, live up to the stereotype, but they're in the minority. Many stations are set up by people who have an interest in serving a community that is not being served uh, by the local 
licensed media ecosystem. Sometimes these people have an expressly political bent, like they're setting up a station in order to support some other social justice project like squatters' rights, police brutality. Some of these stations are mobile and tactical, so they're set up for you know protest events or strike picket lines or things like that. And then there are other stations that are set up to essentially provide a community service. So for example, in the New York metropolitan area, uh, where Brooklyn College is located in the Flatbush neighborhood of Brooklyn, we have several unlicensed broadcast stations that are serving the Haitian diasporic community. So they're broadcasting in French Creole. They're playing music from Haiti. They're talking about Haitian politics and social issues. And some of them, you know, have advertisements from local bodegas or clubs or things like that. And they're kind of running it as a quasi business. Um, so many of these stations are acting as if they were licensed stations and attempting to provide some semblance of community service. Other stations are on the air specifically to make a point about the necessity to resist the communications regulatory infrastructure that we have now. And then, yes, there are some stations who just like to go on the air and play their favorite music and and spout nonsense or whatever. Right. Um, so it's a it's a very diverse community and it changes over time and it changes by geographic location. Um, but it all comes down to the notion that there are lots of people in the United States who believe that the concept of the public airwaves should be literal and that the FCC, if they're going to really, you know, uh, live up to the statutory obligation to regulate in the public interest, convenience and necessity need to provide an element by which members of the public can have access to the airwaves they supposedly own. And, you know, they tried that with LPFM. And it kind of half worked, but by and large, it didn't. And so unlicensed broadcasting steps in uh, to fill a void where communications and broadcast regulation breaks down or does not provide necessary accommodations for, you know, communicative and expressive freedom. And so in, in this here at this moment, then, you know, I think what we've sort of drawn out a little bit is that uh, there, there doesn't seem to be any sort of immediate threat, really, to, to community radio, to college radio, any different than has existed before, right? Uh, you know, that and often the threats have more to do with the station's own support and level of organization and their ability to maintain operations and maintain operations according to the rules and things like that than it is sort of some looming extant kind of uh, threat out there. Um, is that about right? Am I, am I, am I uh, sort of, am I reading the tea leaves okay there? John. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think you're right. I think, you know, in some cases, if the FCC continues to pursue its deregulatory philosophy, stations, including college and community stations, may be released of some burdens, you know, paperwork or administrative requirements that the FCC currently puts on them as a condition of having a license. Some of those may actually go away. So it could make it uh, slightly less onerous to manage a station in that regard. But I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, community stations especially need to be more concerned about factionalism and crazy coups and uh, folks attempting to articulate notions of democratic governance in an institution whose primary role should be running a radio station. And that's a perennial problem that transcends any notion of, you know, FCC regulation. Right. And, and one, you know, sort of to close out some sort of the concerns I've heard raised, I heard this one raised a lot of places. It was really interesting because apparently uh, Donald Trump filed with the FCC, FEC, sorry, the Federal Elections Commission to say yeah. basically they should consider him a candidate for 2020. 
And therefore, uh, all of a sudden, uh, and it was apparently, I guess, some tweet that, that, that went around that somebody laid out this argument that this is terrible because now it means effectively a nonprofit, right? And so they weren't speaking specifically about radio stations, but that a nonprofit now cannot, uh, cannot criticize uh, the president or, or basically his, his uh, regime because he's a candidate, and, right. and and it sort of and, and this was reverberating not just in, in in radio in the radio world not just amongst sort of folks you know who get together on Facebook and other groups around radio but it was reverberating around all all manner of nonprofits and I and 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 to the best of my knowledge uh, first of all that's not true but second of all that at no point has a radio station of any sort ever been. F- barred from criticizing a candidate for office for for any reason. Uh, I'm not crazy, am I, John? Uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I saw the – it was a tweet storm that somebody had put yeah, out. I can't remember right. who, who it was. But uh, I remember reading that as well and going, oh, boy, that's an interesting you know, wrinkle. Um, and and you know, operating under the, under the presumption or the rationale that was presented there, um, it still requires, especially when it comes to things like FCC enforcement, it still requires some sort of grassroots activation to make – the enforcement or regulatory process work. So if that were the case, that Trump now falls under the rules of a candidate as opposed to just simply being a public office holder, then it would be incumbent upon his supporters to monitor the content of their AM and FM dials, note and log stations which may be in violation of this crazy convoluted possibly legit, but who really knows FCC or FEC rule, and then file a complaint with the FCC in order to get them to take action on that. And again, you come back to the notion of does the FCC have the muscle to attempt to enforce that element of regulation, which actually opens up kind of a whole new can of worms because then the FEC and the FCC got to got to get on the same page and they got to work out a rationale. And so really it'll come down to, you know, will the make America great again, folks actually take the time, effort and energy, presuming that this is correct. This assumption is correct to go through the process of targeting affected media outlets. I haven't, I haven't seen that. No, that's, that's kind of where I come to it on top of the fact that the, the rules really regarding candidates uh, are the equal time rules, which only deal with federal candidates, which of course a candidate for president would be, but are only about that candidate's appearances on the station itself in non-news programming, in which case another candidate has the right to request equal time, time that's equal to what, what the other candidate has, which is why when often um, a, a, someone like, let's say a radio host decides to run for uh, an office like a uh, federal representative, uh, House of Representatives, often more for just paperwork reasons, a station will ask that host to take a leave of absence during that campaign so that they don't have to and try and offer equal time to all the other uh, candidates for that particular office. But that's it. I mean, that's really the only, and, and, and as well, I guess uh, a non-commercial station can't take an active position to campaign for a particular candidate to sort of endorse a candidate. But there's a huge wide uh, range of things in between, uh, you know, uh, either having a candidate on or, or endorsing a candidate with regard to being able to say all sorts of things under the canon of, of, of free speech. 
Yeah, there's uh, right around the political, you know, whenever the political advertising season comes about um, and, you know, the broadcast industry holds trade conferences on on this sort of stuff like the NAB radio show, uh, there's a guy at the FCC whose name escapes me who's like the guru uh, on political broadcast rules. And oftentimes in industry publications, as these conferences are, are being scheduled or being played out, they'll say things like, give the guy a call. Here's his cell phone. He wants to hear from you. And I'm actually trying to look up that guy right now because we could call him and say, <laughs> you know, so, so what do you think about this, this potential notion that suddenly Trump is a candidate and not just an office holder, but I, I can't find the information, but there, there would be someone at the FCC. Uh, there's, there is literally a guy uh, who goes around to the industry conferences and says, here's my phone number. Give me a call if you have any questions. Um, but again, it's just one guy, right? So, you know. And in part, that's because, and this is, some, this is uh, something I repeat to broadcasters all of the time. The FCC is interested in you following the rules and is interested in compliance and is interested in, peop- in, in, in organizations that hold licenses maintaining to hold those licenses and continuing to broadcast. It's not interested in stations going off the air. The whole organization is oriented to them staying on the air. They'd rather you ask the question <laughs> than made bad assumptions yep. because they'd really rather not to have to, to, to spend all this time in enforcement. They'd rather spend the time on activities that support all sorts of, of communications, which includes broadcast. That, that, that's the orientation. And I think that's important for, for broadcasters of all kind to uh, keep in mind. You know, the last thing I'd kind of like to take up here is, is that it is that, you know, certainly a theme when we talk to, to your colleague, uh, Professor Christopher Terry, who's at the University of, of Minnesota, uh, talking to him about the pie the Aji Pai FCC is that we're likely to see uh, moves towards more deregulation, which could include radio, which could include perhaps things like lifting uh, or raising the limit on the number of stations that uh, a given entity can own in a particular market, or loose, loosening the rules on local management agreements. Right, where where one entity effectively owns a station, but another one really actually operates it, and things like that. And then we just heard uh, the other day. That uh, CBS Radio and Entercom, which is uh, two of the larger radio uh, conglomerates, intend to merge. Yes. So I sit there and I look at this, and and knowing what we know about what happened since 1996, right when when we had the Telecommunications Act, with which eliminated the the nationwide uh, ownership caps and then greatly loosen the ownership caps locally. We saw what happened, which was basically commercial radio got worse and worse and worse. It was de- There was disinvestment. Uh, localism took a big hit. And it's hard to imagine that anything but that is what will happen if we have consolidation part due, right? It seems like that is the most likely outcome um, if we're a student of history. Is this an opportunity can we turn it around for community radio, for low power FM, for college radio at a time in which compared to 1996, we have thousands more of these stations on the air in communities that never had anything like this before. Um, you know, there's this greater, there's this huge explosion in community radio. Is this an opportunity, this environment? Wow, that's a really good question. Oh, and by the way, I found the guy's name at the FCC who does political stuff. Uh, his name's Robert, a.k.a. Bobby Baker. Um, 
He's the head of the Media Bureau's political programming staff. So you can find his number and give him a call and ask him those questions about Trump's candidacy. Um, but going back to the notion of, you know, would uh, a new round of consolidation be advantageous for, you know, non-commercial community college LPFM stations? You know, that's a really good question, and I don't think I have a, a totally hard answer to that. Um, the thing that I keep coming back to is, in many cases, these deals that we're going to be seeing, and many of the deals that we've seen subsequent to the first um, orgasmic, you know, confluence of of broadcast conglomerates, uh, has basically been, in some cases, people uh, scrounging for the scraps uh, to make a viable conglomerate out of. And in some cases it's rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, you know? So for <laughs> example, you know, uh, the number one and number two broadcast conglomerates right now, clear channel and cumulus are, are literally flirting with bankruptcy. You know, they are, they are standing at the precipice. Cumulus has already declared bankruptcy and, and gone through restructuring once they're sitting on it again. Um, and uh, Clear Channel is now fending off piecemeal attacks from creditors who would like to uh, call in some of the debt and force the company into default. So in many respects, uh, other nascent consolidation opportunities are attempting to essentially grow in scale to compete with you know, dinosaurs who have watched the meteor already come crashing down and are trying really hard to keep breathing the noxious fumes in their atmosphere right now. At the same time, you know, we've also seen elements of kind of mid-level consolidation. Uh, there was, you know, Town Square Media is an organization, radio organization that has grown over the last several years uh, to hold lots and lots of stations and clusters in, in big markets. I think there's a company out in, uh, in your area, Paul, Portland, like Alpha Media or something like that. Yes. Um, you know, that has also been involved in, you know, kind of going through the notion of clustering and consolidation and things like that. So when you see something like CBS and Entercom take place, you're seeing existing conglomerates attempting to kind of merge together, almost like what we saw with, you know, um, uh, what, what was happening with like uh, uh, Charter uh, wanting to buy. Verizon now, uh, or charter buying, you know, Time Warner cable, and now thinking about wanting to buy Verizon. These are existing conglomerates that are attempting, uh, simply attempting to get larger, which doesn't necessarily change the ecosystem of commercial radio. It just removes the number of owners. The interesting thing about, you know, the CBS intercom deal is that CBS was all gung ho to do an initial public offering to spin off uh, you know, themselves to a publicly traded company. And they were really, you know, pedal to the metal trying to get that done. It was supposed to happen actually last month. And then suddenly, whoop, instead, uh, we're going to sell out to Entercom. And the interesting thing about that deal is that it was done as a, what's called a reverse Morris trust, which basically says you're selling, but you're also merging at the same time. And if you're doing those two things together, you don't have to pay taxes on any of this. Woo. Um, so it works out really well for the shareholders, of both CBS and Entercom. But, you know, what does that mean for opportunities for, you know, community or LPFM stations or college stations? You know, it doesn't really change the dynamic of the existing radio ecosystem all that much. Um, it may mean more homogenized programming, fewer local voices, which all basically can be used to a net benefit for locally run, community supported, and programmed uh, stations. So if I were running a community radio station or involved with a college radio station or an LPFM, I'd be trying to do even more promotion and outreach saying, hey, look, you know, our media environment's actually getting even more, 
uh, you know, consolidated and we are a breath of fresh air. We are an alternative. Please come work with us or support us or, you know, be a, be a sustaining donor of some sort. Um, but then again, you know, where is radio's place in the information universe in which we exist now? Many people think of radio and they don't think of AM and FM. They think of Pandora and Spotify and YouTube, right? So radio has a lot of work to do to maintain its own relevancy and to carve out a niche for itself, uh, to, to keep itself important as our information environment continues to evolve. You know, I know a number of community stations organized phonathons on Inauguration Day or the day after Inauguration Day, where they went down their donor list and identified people for a personal call to say, hey, you know, uh, we're here holding the torch for independent communication, for, you know, in many cases, uh, I, you know, dissenting ideas not heard anywhere else. Um, boy, here's a time when we can really use some additional help. And, and from what I understand, these have been relatively successful. Uh, uh, campaigns, uh, you know, looking at, you know, trying to think about what your listenership values and what they may be looking for and what they really need in a lot of ways, what your community really needs, lining uh, lining that up with what you do and then and then not being afraid to ask for help. And I think that that's the, the thing that uh, sometimes, especially new folks in, in radio and, and low power FM stations, that's hard. You're not practiced. No, a lot of people don't like to ask for money. Um, you know, we certainly often in our culture are raised not to do such things. But the fact is, is that um, there may indeed be opportunities to help grow your station in, in this environment, both uh, from politically speaking and uh, from the sort of political or economic standpoint of what is happening to our uh, communications environment in general, not just radio. You know, I think that's a really good point, and uh, it draws me into kind of a different notion of threat assessment. I'm less concerned about what the FCC may do uh, to put pressure on or mess with the operation of non-commercial community radio stations, as I'm more concerned about the defunding of federal institutions that have historically provided elements of financial support to these stations. You know, there's there's an effort to zero out the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and this is just not the Republican in Congress on their old, you know, sawhorse. This is straight from the mouth of the Donald. He'd like to get rid of that. He'd like to get rid of the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, you know, and and those kind of federal subsidies, which stations have taken advantage of at a, to a variety of degrees, and that make up a variety of percentages of their operations budgets, may be going away. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Now is the time to reach out uh, to your local community, make those phone calls and say, hey, by the way, not only are we representing you know viewpoints that aren't heard before, we're actually providing you with direct access to the airwaves, but there is the chance that some of the subsidies that we've been able to take advantage of to keep this thing operational uh, may disappear, and we're going to need you to fill in that gap. Yeah, we're going to have Ernesto Aguilar, who is with the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, on next next week uh, to talk a little bit about some of some of these aspects. I know he he is in charge of uh, sort of what they call programming for stations, and he's activating. He's thinking hard, and he's working on programs uh, to help stations, uh, you know, understand. That, that relationship, I think, that you just draw out to activate uh, because I think that probably uh, local, you know, your your federal representatives, many of them may be more open to hearing the arguments than you think, but they have to hear about it. And he's going to help us understand a little bit more about that on next week's show. But I thought I would preview that since 
since you uh, brought that up. Uh, Jennifer, do you have any last questions for John? Any last sort of things that you think uh, either affecting community radio, podcasting, or college radio? Well, John just anticipated one of them by bringing up um, some of the comments that we've heard about CPB and arts organizations. So I, I'm glad that he mentioned that, and I'm glad that we're going to hear more about that from Ernesto, because um, that's something I'm definitely concerned about. Um, I don't know. I mean, free speech is something that is is something that that's also top of mind for many of us right now and freedom of the press and, and student press freedom. And, and I know it's a little bit different when you look at it as far as radio versus the printed press. Um, but I'd, I'd love to hear what, what you think about freedom of the press as far as student press and, and what we should be worried about, excited about monitoring. Mm, that's, that's a, that's a, wow. Uh, a big, big, big question, and uh, I, I mean, the, I, I only have a very simple answer to that, and that is vigilance. You know, there's there's the notion of what is considered acceptable speech. We now exist in a in a media environment, especially a news environment, where there are competing sets of facts, um, and in many respects, uh, that causes uh, conflict and consternation. Um, at the same time, there are so many things happening transformatively to, you know, the policies of our, of our government on many levels um, that it's kind of impossible for media organizations, including student media organizations, not to react to these sorts of things, right? I mean, I'm at the City University of New York and at Brooklyn College, we have two student-run newspapers and... Um, you know, they are talking about the effect of Trump policies on, you know, the community, the student community, um, which is, uh, heavily, uh, foreign born and immigrant based, right? Um, those are legitimate things to talk about because the policies are being affected. You know, the, the policies that are being affected are the ones that are affecting the lives of the people who are both writing the newspapers and reading the newspapers and our administration has made some declarative statements about not necessarily how they'll resist the imposition of new regulations involving things like, you know, immigration, but they've demonstrated an element of solidarity and support. And we haven't seen a pushback from the administration against student media outlets like, you know, watch your pros. We don't want to get ourselves on, you know, in Trump's tweet crosshairs. Um, but I don't think that we're going to be able to get around that stuff. At the same time, again, it comes down to Trumpsters. Uh, monitoring and activating and attempting to put pressure through a variety of means on those media outlets. And we haven't seen that so much just yet. And that's really going to come down to how strong is the base of core Trump supporters and how willing are they to engage in their own confrontations and conflicts in order to help him actualize his new vision for, you know, making America great again. Um, but the watchword for everybody is vigilance, whether you're running a student, you know, newspaper or a student radio station or an LPFM or an unlicensed broadcast radio station, um, the ground is shifting underneath our feet and nobody knows what the outcome is going to be. So now it's best to, you know, be vigilant and potentially prepare for worst case scenarios. And if I could put an addendum on that, it would be, uh, for all of the above, 
is to keep those lines of communication with your constituency and your community open. You know, it's something that we've, Jennifer and I have stressed over and over again to college stations uh, as part of their own survival strategy, more often with regard to their campus community, make sure they're well known, make sure that they are uh, that they are uh, seen as an asset to the campus community. And I think the same is true for community radio stations, podcasters, or for a campus newspaper, for, for there to be the sense that they are assets and that they serve the community. And it doesn't mean dodging controversy necessarily, right? But it means that if there will be controversy, it's sure good to have people and organizations that have your back. If you're if you are airing programming that is that dissents with the uh, with the plans of the executive, um, you know, know who it benefits, know who you are you are voicing for and who you're voicing with and and be in solidarity because it goes both yeah. ways. And I think that that is something which uh, smart stations are doing because, uh, you, you know, your station will have the backs of many people they, and they will have your back as well. But make that outreach. Uh, this is not the time to, to, you know, wall the garden. This is not the time to build a silo with a transmitter on top. Um, it's a time to really embrace community in that broad sort of way because I think in, in that way that your community needs you and your station and what you do, uh, you need them. And not just for the, not just, you know, for the, uh, for the, for the, for the money, not just for the memberships, but for, for the, for having those ties, uh, for being able to have the open lines of communication, it allows you to do even better service to your community when that's open. And I think, uh, that that's part of vigilance and it's, it's, it's defensive, but it's, it's not a defensive maneuver in the same way as, you know, uh, hunkering down and putting on a helmet, right? <laughs> Yeah, true that, for sure. Yeah, it's a positive response. Yes, a positive response. It's at least something we look for here at uh, at Radio Survivor. Any final words, John? I think we're ready to wrap up. No, I'm, I'm pretty good. We covered a lot of ground here today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I know I know. Eric will be sad uh, that he missed it. Uh, he's feeling poorly. He has a stomach flu, but he'll be back uh, next week, we really hope. And I, I hope, John, you'll be back because uh, I know he'd like to talk with you some. I'm sure he'll have questions for you. Jennifer, thanks so much uh, for joining sure. us as well. And uh, thank you to everyone for listening. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments, please send them to us, podcast at radiosurvivor.com, or you can tweet us. You can find us on Facebook. We're really easy, really easy to get a hold of. Um, and, in fact, before we close out now, um, Ernesto, who's going to be on next week, he listened to our show last week, and um, he shared with us a commentary. And this is something we've asked people to do, and a few of you have taken us up on the offer. But, you know, there are times maybe you don't want to write an email, or we'd love to hear your voice. We'd love to hear what you think about the issues we talk about. Uh, use your smartphone, use your computer, whatever, and record us a quick little commentary, a couple of minutes. You can do it right there and just email it to us. And so Ernesto, uh, he was he was lit, lit up by the conversation we had last week when we were talking about the ability of community stations uh, to do journalism or to sustain journalism and also talked about, you know, the value of small podcasting and small broadcasting and why it's worth doing even if it seems like you, you don't have the, the kind of audience numbers of an Ira Glass uh, or a Mark Marin. You know, we talked a little bit about that and Ernesto weighed in with his own thoughts on it, really great thoughts on those issues. So we're going to listen to that at the end of the show. So thank 
Thanks all for tuning in. Thanks again, Jennifer and John, and I will be talking to you all soon. Hello, my esteemed hosts. As a former guest and fan of your podcast, I listened to your last episode with tons of interest. Not just because I wrote an essay giving examples of solid community radio podcasting, I'll get to that shameless self-promotion later, but also because the conversation about journalism is important to me as a former program director and a former news director. While I appreciate Eric Klein's point about sustainability and journalism, I think there are two critical matters. One is leadership. Are station general managers and boards allocating funds and shoring up cash to support journalism? Are they hiring investigative or data-centric reporters who can deliver what you assume people want? Are they paying them what they're worth? If the answer to any and all of those questions is no, especially in communities with lots of money, then you're either in the wrong place or that second example. You need to look at your news department differently. As a news director who didn't have management doing what I mentioned, and then as a manager, I approach journalism in community radio as a place to teach best practices, to give young people job training opportunities, and to help them do the best journalism possible, with a clear expectation that, while we weren't able to hire, we were giving them skills that cost thousands of dollars and presented them with finished work that they could take to a future in media. I know dozens of people in the public radio system who did that, and I wanted to encourage the next person's ambition, knowing that I'd help instill core values when it came to news gathering, values they'd carry on throughout their careers. I know that means that we recruited a different sort of volunteer reporter, but hey, it was what it was, and maybe something others need to consider. I don't think it's in community radio's best interests to focus on being the anti-CNN. It's honest to find and train the next Anderson Cooper who cuts his or her teeth on local stories and culture, and who's aware of the importance of our media sector and our impact on people's lives. Being the counterpoint to the Washington Post is not only expensive, but pointless. We have Facebook for opinions no one cares about, Twitter for snark, and well, you get the picture. I'm being somewhat cheeky, of course, but I think it's important we not think of journalism the way a few people think of community radio programs, lifetime appointments you will give to your grandchildren. Community radio journalism needs to be responsive, and remember, its purpose is educational. You've had me on the show. I can talk more and more and more, but let me leave you with this. In doing my research for a few years of writing about podcasting, I couldn't agree more with your discussion about podcasting audiences. It's so necessary to scale thinking to being about creating and enhancing community. People take for granted the Gimlet and the sundry best-of-breed podcasts like This American Life have money dedicated solely to podcasting. Unless you're willing to devote those same resources in a consistent way, you're probably not going to do 100,000 downloads an episode or even 10,000. If you're not delivering big numbers, quality of relationship counts. And for a station that does underwriting, podcast mentions can be a boost to local partners and the station too. The beauty of small is that many community radio organizations don't have a strong brand and thus each can really make over their stations and present to their podcast audiences something a little bit more edgy, diverse, or contextual than you may be in real life. 
Now, I don't believe it's good to get all tender about it and try to be something you're not. However, Jacobs Media Survey of Americans demonstrated only 6% of respondents even know what public radio is. Just 6%. And it's fair to guess that community radio isn't even that high. So why not use podcasting to reach a new audience with a new attitude? Just a thought. Now for that shameless self-promotion, I just profiled a dozen podcasts done by community radio stations worth your ear in 2017. It came out briefly before the last podcast and is searchable at Medium. We at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters also showcase station podcasts at nfcb.org. Thanks, y'all. Hope you're well. And that was Ernesto Aguilar. He is the membership program director for the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, submitting his commentary to us. Uh, he's responding to podcast number 79. This is podcast number 80. You can find all of our podcasts at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Also, he mentioned some things he's written. We have links to that in our show notes. So just go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast look for podcast number 80 for those show notes and that'll reference everything you need to know to learn more about what ernesto is talking about and what's great is we've got ernesto scheduled to come up on the next podcast it'll be number 81 to tell us um, really a little bit more about some of the federal programs that are under threat and other things under threat that that can harm community radio in addition to public radio He's going to help us uh, wrap our heads around that. Of course, if you have any comments about the show, please send them to us, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. That's also where you can send your audio commentary. If you have anything to say about anything you've heard on the show at any time, really. So, you know, maybe even just something a few episodes ago that you just heard or has been sitting in the back of your head, please don't hesitate to let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Send it to podcast at radiosurvivor.com by email or otherwise get a hold of us on Facebook or Twitter. We're Radio Survivor. Very easy to find and let us know that you've got a uh, commentary you'd like to suggest. Or if there's someone you think we should talk to or you think uh, we should talk to you on the show or something you'd like to share, we'd love to hear more. Uh, this is We try to make this as grassroots as possible as a podcast, but... It's great when we can kind of turn it into a conversation. Also want to say uh, apologies for the fact that the sound quality of my voice uh, for this episode wasn't great. Uh, I made an error when recording. I heard myself great in the headphones and everything, but it turned out that what instead of my microphone getting recorded, it was my laptop microphone uh, that was picking up into Skype and then onto the recording. I don't know how it happened, but it's the kind of thing you really just can't fix and post uh so we hope and in fact i plan to have a better recording next week but we do in fact thank you for listening every single week once again uh this is your host paul reesmodel eric who was sick this week he should be back next week we'll be here once again with ernesto aguilar from the national federation of community broadcasters thanks again for listening